1: you're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chatterley in New York. And a warm welcome once again to all our first movers around the globe. Great to have you with us this Friday. And it's actually a special song of the summer edition of the program today. Number five on our first move countdown, When Doves Cry. Hawkish Fed Chair Jay Powell varying yet again Thursday to tame soaring inflation. Powell's message to higher prices, just beat it. And number four, we didn't start the fire. U.S. oil executives deflect blame for the petrol pain, but they called an emergency summit with Biden officials Thursday constructive. And number three, we're not going to take it. UK workers threaten fresh walkouts and demand better pay amid mounting political pressure on Boris Johnson. Could by-elections lead to a Boris bye-bye? We'll discuss shortly. And number two, let him in. The EU taking its first steps this week to offering membership to Ukraine and Moldova. And last but not least, number one, you've got to have faith after a challenging few weeks for the bulls. Take a look at this. U.S. futures hitting high notes with Wall Street on track for a winning week. Oversold conditions, I think, perhaps helping stocks bounce. A lot of bad news also baked into prices, including perhaps even a mild recession at these levels. European stocks, meanwhile, also higher after a strong handover from the Asia session, helping sentiment strong profits from economic bellwether FedEx and passing grades for U.S. banks in this year's stress tests. The Federal Reserve says major institutions are strong enough to endure even a severe recession. Okay, that's it. Let's get straight to our top story today when we begin in Ukraine. Ukrainian forces are beginning to withdraw from the eastern city of Severodonetsk. As one military leader says relentless Russian shelling has completely destroyed the city's infrastructure. Salma Abdelaziz joins us now live from Kiev. Salma, what more can you tell us? Because it does feel like a sense of they're saying there's nothing left to defend.
2: This is a major and devastating loss for Ukrainian forces. This morning, uh, local officials saying that they are unable to hold the line any longer, That. Uh months, two months of constant Russian artillery attacks, of constant uh, aggression from Russian forces has forced them essentially to withdraw, to pull out of Severodonetsk. Now, that withdrawal will take a matter of days, but it's already underway. Uh, We know that the last stand, if you will, was in this chemical plant, the Azat chemical plant there. There were civilians that were sheltering alongside Ukrainian defenders. And you can't ignore just how much powerful of a military Russia has. Uh, They have an advantage, an artillery advantage of 10 to 1 when it comes to Ukrainian forces. Their ground assault was being backed by the air. They have multiple launch rocket systems. Ukraine on the other hand was saying it was outmanned, it was outgunned. All along those front lines dozens of Ukrainian forces were dying every single day. So yes, you are seeing Ukrainian forces now pull back. They say they'll continue uh, to try to advance, to try to win in Severodonetsk but do it from a distance. But you can't imagine and how that could hold Julia and this is going to be a major victory for President Putin. Uh- Sarodonetsk is one of the last strongholds in the Lohensk area, part of the wider Donbass. And one of President Putin's major goals in this conflict is to take full control, rest full control of the Donbass. It allows him to form a land bridge that connects uh, Russian territory all the way down to Crimea. But it's also a cultural victory for President Putin, who has ignored, of course, Ukrainian sovereignty, claimed that these lands are Russian. It's a land grab and there's nothing standing in his way.
1: I'll blow to for the Ukrainians. Sam Abdelaziz, thank you for that report there. Now, Russia stands accused of using hunger as a weapon of war. Germany says the whole world is now a hostage to the food crisis caused by the war in Ukraine. A key meeting is taking place on the matter in Berlin with the US Foreign Secretary arriving in the past hour. The aim is to find ways to get grain out of Ukraine and to prevent parts of the world falling into famine. Fred Platkin is in Berlin for us. The message from the State Department, Fred, and great to have you with us, is this is a multi year crisis and nations have to plan accordingly. But in the short term, what are the Mm -hmm. practical solutions being discussed?
3: Well, I think it's extremely difficult, Julian. It's something that we saw also today. I think one of the reasons why this meeting in Berlin is actually so important is that it shows that this is a huge issue for the world's community, for the G7. There's a G7 foreign ministers meeting going on with food security as its main topic and it really shows that this is the top of the agenda for a lot of these very you know high end economies for some of these top performing economies of the world and they understand they need to do something now is that a press statement between the secretary of state and the german foreign minister and she unequivocally said that the world community is not going to allow as she put it russia's aggression in ukraine allowed to make the world dive into what she called global famine possible global famine but Very important to ask, what exactly are the solutions that can be had uh, in all of this? And the German foreign minister, they're saying that uh, they would try to get grain out of Ukraine. Of course, it is very difficult with a lot of those ports uh, blockaded in Ukraine, of course, um, with Russian warships very close to them. The only alternative that can be seen right now would be by road or by rail. But of course, as you know, it's almost impossible, it probably is impossible, in fact, to, to make the kind of volume that you do with shipping grain uh, by uh, transporting it via the land route. So certainly, the developed nations of the world, uh, they see that this is a huge problem. It's something that they're working urgently on, they say. But aside from trying to put economic pressure on Russia and, of course, supporting Ukraine militarily, it really is difficult to see what sort of solutions there are. One of the interesting things, though, Julia... Uh, that we heard there, is that the German foreign minister and the secretary of state both said that part of what they also want to do is combat disinformation as far as food security is concerned. They accuse Russia of not only using food as a weapon, but also spreading the message that it's actually the West that's stopping uh, those foods, and Ukraine, that's stopping those food stocks from leaving Ukrainian ports. It's something that we've actually heard from the Russians. I was actually on the phone ...with the spokesman for the Kremlin last week, and he said, yeah, of course, they would let ships leave the port of Odessa, but the Ukrainians have to remove the mines that are there, of course, trying to stop the Russians from moving their ships into there, and the Russians actually want to inspect the ships that go into the port of Odessa. So you can see, there's essentially an information war going on around that as well, an information battle, but at the same time of course, global food insecurity is a huge issue, and it is at the top of the agenda, and certainly something just with the presence of the U.S. Secretary of State here in Berlin today, really shows how high up on the agenda it actually is, Julia.
1: Absolutely, and all of these possible solutions, however difficult, do need to be discussed. Fred, great to have you with us. Thank you. Fred in there. And later on, as Fred was discussing there, we'll be speaking to the CEO of the state-owned Ukrainian Railways, about the colossal challenges of moving grain out of the country and the logistical challenges of doing so too. Now, already riven by scandals, Boris Johnson's Conservative Party has suffered two election defeats in one day. The by-elections were set to select new lawmakers to replace two disgraced Tories. One has been caught watching porn in Parliament and the other was jailed for sexual assault. Bianca Nobilo joins us on this. Bianca, great to have you with us. Um, It comes, of course, just weeks after 41%, I believe that was the number of the Prime Minister's own MPs, voted to oust him. It's an uncomfortable day, even if you're 4,000 and miles away as he is.
4: It is Julia, and Boris Johnson's political rock bottom appears to be a moving target. He is in deep trouble today because he built and contested his platform as Prime Minister based on the fact that he could deliver election victories. And not just that, but that he could specifically appeal to working-class urban areas in the North that are traditionally Labour, that may have favored Brexit, and Tory heartlands in the South, like where I am right now, or where that by-election in Tiverton and Hollington was contested. These two by-elections demonstrate, in a microcosm, that Boris Johnson's political formula to win elections is now toxic. It no longer works, because he's lost both. So. He's in part, partially protected in his position right now because there's a confidence, there was a confidence vote so recently in him. Technically, according to the rules, there can't be another for a year. But I have heard grumblings this morning from those who sit on that committee that they may be inclined to change the rules if something doesn't change in a big way fast. So Boris Johnson could be looking at more creative ways to try and oust him. And Julia, it was actually a triple blow for the Prime Minister this morning because not only did he lose two seats held by his party, one which was extremely safe, but there was also the resignation of the co-chair of the Conservative Party, Oliver Dowden. Now, he said that he was resigning because the party have had a series of very poor election results. And pointedly, he said someone should take responsibility. Now, in the phrasing of the sentence, you could read it as he himself in his resignation is taking responsibility, but also that he's directing that towards the prime minister. And that person, Oliver Dowden, was one of Johnson's biggest backers for leadership. And he even supported him in the confidence vote just a few weeks ago. So all of this is building up a pit of even more dire political straits for Boris Johnson, there was a lot of apathy in the electorate too in those by-elections. And it just is, is really creating this difficult situation for the Conservative Party to get themselves out of. Boris Johnson is proving to be more politically toxic as time goes on and it seems that the longer they keep him as leader, the more irreparable that damage will be to the Conservative Party brand, Julia.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And actually, the other quote that I would have used, um, Bianca, and I saw that one as well from the party chairman, we cannot carry on with business as usual, which, of course, is exactly what Boris Johnson is um, is trying to do. Um, a warning, clearly, as you said, in these uh, in these results. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Bianca Nobilo there. OK, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. January 6th committee has held its last public hearing before the July 4th holiday. On Thursday, top officials in Donald Trump's Justice Department, testified that the former president was relentless in pushing election conspiracies. For now, I'm going to take you over, though, to Brussels, where Charles Michel our first is speaking. Let's listen in. On the
5: emerging European political community, it's not an alternative to enlargement. We sought to frame the idea by addressing three questions. Why? And the idea is to ensure security and stability on the European continent. What? This could take the form of a platform for political dialogue and coordination with our European partners on an equal footing and who we think it's best for the format to be for leaders only and we intend to define later its specific scope. We will have a possible first meeting in uh, the Prague uh, under the, the Czech presidency and we will prepared to together, together with uh, the French President and the Czech uh, rotating Presidency this possible meeting after the summer. Today we had the Euro Summit and we had the occasion to focus on two key points. First, the current economic situation. Inflation is a major concern for all of us. Russia's war of aggression is pushing up the price of energy food, and commodities, and all of this has a direct impact on our citizens and businesses. We are united, and we agreed to closely coordinate our economic policy responses. And second topic, our European, politi- our European financial architecture. We remain committed to completing the banking union, and further steps will follow, and the deepening of the capital markets union remains a priority. Nous avons également eu l'occasion. Also, we had an opportunity to uh,
6: talk again about uh, the progress. En termes de
5: questions uh, énergétiques, the avec la ferme intention de continuer à déployer des efforts pour coordonner nos actions dans ce domaine important en prenant également en compte le travail
6: area. qui est taking into account the work the that is being commission. done, starting with enfin, the Commission. And finally, two uh, uh, points uh, I w- would like to uh, mention.
5: A significant step forward has been taken by Croatia, now about to join the euro area. That's an important decision which was endorsed by the European Council. An implementation that will uh, take place in the coming months, and we'd like to uh, warmly congratulate uh, the Croatian government and uh, people. All this decision shows how resilient uh, the euro area is. Then, finally,
6: in In Greece we have the opportunity to pay tribute to the steps forward made by Greece
5: in terms of uh, ending uh, the surveillance program which also shows the significant progress that has been achieved. And then there's one thing I'd like to uh, mention still. I'd like to uh, again express uh, our
6: thanks to the French presidency of the European Union. We had an opportunity at the end of the European Council again all 27ers to congratulate uh, uh, France on the gigantic uh, political work that has been uh, done in a number of areas and these efforts will continue because in the coming days
5: uh, uh, on the
6: Western Balkans in particular and North Macedonia and Albania uh, in the light of the vote in the Bulgarian Parliament a few hours ago there's still something to be done
5: so we'll continue to watch that closely and again huge thanks to the President
6: and the whole team which was mobilized to uh, make progress on the European Project.
5: Then <laughs> also I have a, a
6: particular uh, message uh, to the, the staff, Pino. to Pino and Pino, the two Pinos,
5: uh, which uh, might surprise uh, you, Pino et Pino but Pino and uh, Pino, you're something of in an institution the in uh, the uh, Council press room, uh,
6: you're known <laughs> throughout the world.
5: I'd like to thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And the applause shows how much affection you enjoy from the press. So, again, many thanks.
6: Thank you, Mr. President. Madam President.
7: Yes, thank you so much. Indeed, uh, today we had the opportunity to hold an in-depth discussion on the economy during the Euro Summit – The euro area is forecast to continue growing both in 22 and 23, although by less than we anticipated before the war. Obviously, the war in Ukraine is having a heavy impact both on growth and on inflation. We've seen Russia's disruptive action on gas, and we're seeing price increases beyond energy on food and elsewhere in the economy. Therefore, we discussed how to mitigate the economic and social impacts, especially on the most vulnerable of our societies. This starts with being adequately prepared to deal with potential further disruptions in deliveries of Russian gas to Europe, and we are working hard on this. We have reviewed all the national emergency plans to help make sure everyone is ready for further disruptions, and we are working on a common european emergency demand reduction plan with industry but also with the 27 member states we do this because we've learned our lesson from covid 19 there we have seen that when we act together as 27 when we avoid fragmentation we are strong and we have an enormous impact i will present this plan in july to the leaders There will not be a return to cheap fossil fuels, I think, and therefore alongside temporary and targeted support to vulnerable families and businesses, it is essential to help our economies and societies to adapt to the new conditions. The root cause of our problem is our dependence on fossil fuel, which we must get rid of. And this is basically the essence of Repower EU, we are providing through RepowerEU resources of around about 300 billion Euro to do three things. On one hand, to diversify our energy supply. Second pillar is to increase the energy efficiency. And the third pillar is the supply of our own, own green renewable energy. And we are already seeing results If I may give you an example for the first pillar, the diversification away from Russian gas, we see that the U.S. LNG deliveries to the European Union are up by 75% this year compared to last year. We've just um, done an MOU with Israel, Egypt, uh, and the European Union to make sure that there's natural gas from Israel, liquefied in Egypt, and then brought via LNG, to the European Union. The Norwegian pipeline gas is up 15%, Azerbaijan up by plus 90%. So there's a lot on the move, really to diversify away from the Russian gas to other trustworthy suppliers. Looking at the renewables, I think there's one interesting figure. The European Union was and is the second largest market globally in terms of increased capacity of renewables in twenty one and will be in. twenty two so you also see the big move forward of heavy investment in renewables that is the energy of the future that's the way to go. a second topic uh, that we have been discussing is in parallel that we are working on the review of the economic governance. we know that debts and deficits have soared in all member states after covid and at the same time investment needs are very large for a successful transition to a green digital and resilient eu society and economy and therefore we need to design rules that in a way reconcile these higher investment needs they are necessary and at the same time to safeguard sound fiscal finances the one goes with the other that is fiscal sustainability and growth and let me also end, dear Emmanuel, by congratulating you to an extremely successful French presidency. It was colossal, the work you've done. I've witnessed this, uh, every day how intensive your team, and I really want to thank you and your team, has been working on progress in the European Union. It really made a difference. I mean, we should keep in mind that when you started... Um, There was a lot on your plate, but you had no clue that there was a war coming. In record time, we delivered together six packages of heavy sanctions. And um, I think it was a hallmark and a very defining moment to see the determination of the European Union and the speed at which we can move forward. We have in this time welcomed 7.5 million refugees from Ukraine. Three million are still here. And you and your team as presidency made it possible that we very quickly granted temporary protection that is access to the labor market, to the education system, to the social security system. All this thanks to the French presidency. I thank you personally for the enormous progress that we have made in uh, the European Green Deal, and here specifically the huge package of Fit for 55, dozens of proposals have now been pushed forward, and this is a real step forward. The same goes, and I know this is very close to your heart, uh, the DSA and the DMA, so uh, getting an order into the online world as well as we have it in the offline world to protect our citizens, and to keep up the competitiveness of our businesses in the online work world, this has been the DSA and DMA negotiated with ambition and adopted in record time, really delivered. There was the conference on the future of Europe, but I'm personally very proud on one specific file that uh, you have concluded in the French presidency, and this is Women on Board. It took ten long years. It was stuck for ten years. And the French Presidency made it possible that it reappeared and was negotiated and adopted in record time. So not only did you finish an injustice for women, but also an enormous loss for, of earnings for companies, it's a real big step forward that we have now this agreement on women on board. Last but not least, and I want uh, to not miss to mention it, we have made good progress on the Pact on Migration and Asylum, especially on the Voluntary Solidarity Mechanism uh, and on the governance of Schengen. Important files were difficult to manage. You really pushed it forward. And uh, I stop here, but um, as you can see, dear Emmanuel, I think France can be very proud of this presidency. It was outstanding, and many thanks for that.:.
5: Merci
8: Merci, la thank you, Madam President. Mr. President, thank you very much, uh, President, Madam President. A lot has been Sur said, and I won't uh, go over uh, this morning's debate. I think, le think le the conclusions are clear, and the uh, President of the Council and the President of the Commission have uh, set out exactly uh, what the debate was all about, to try and find a response to energy and the issues. or more broadly, the issue that we're all living the through, the through at the, the moment, the uh, sudden uh, return uh, of inflation, monetary policy on the two sides of the ocean and also uh, signs of uh, slowing economic activity. And we're all called upon by that situation to take decisions. Uh, uh, Energy is being mentioned. We need to think uh, about what we can do to make Uh, Europe stronger, to show more solidarity in financial issues too. I just wanted to say one thing in response to what President Michel was saying before. He talked about the European political community. We had a debate on that yesterday after the press conference that we held and it gave me an opportunity to get a a clearer idea of uh, this and to uh, kind of some consensus around the table. Now, this is not something, it's not a process to replace enlargement, not at all. But I think we all saw that there was a need for a, a European political framework to deal with strategic issues, and we saw that uh, enlargement, because of uh, its uh, uh, pace and, and, and how long it takes, uh, it does not do everything that we need to do in Europe. So uh, we want this uh, this, this new approach to include everybody from Ukraine to Iceland, to bring together partners on issues like defense and security, energy, infrastructure,
5: uh, health
8: crises, uh, economic solidarity, to talk about these key issues. And... Uh, That's all got to be prepared, and we've decided that the first meeting will take uh, place in the Czech Republic under the uh, incoming uh, presidency with all our partners, the idea being to have a a partnership uh, between equals, and then we'll uh, put flesh on the bones as we go along given that uh, it's got clear benefits for us all. I also want to come back to something that was uh, mentioned yesterday, but what happened this morning uh, has shown how topical this is. It's about the accession uh, negotiations for North Macedonia and Albania. And uh, we had the – I called for the vote uh, in the Bulgarian parliament for the lifting of the Bulgarian uh, veto regarding the uh, North Macedonian – accession negotiations, which um, helps uh, Albania as well. So we'll continue uh, with this. We've got a uh, negotiation with our Bulgarian North Macedonian Uh, counterparts to sort out that agreement over the next uh, few days, and everybody's uh, prepared to to, uh, get all that formalized. uh, I'd like to thank the Bulgarian uh, Prime Minister, coalition partners, opposition parties who actually voted that through. Uh, So, congratulations to North Macedonia on the progress. There's work still to be done, but that's important progress nonetheless. I'd also like to thank uh, President von der Leyen for taking stock of the last six months. This gives me an opportunity to say that all this uh, progress, and I'll mention some things specifically, but this would not have been possible without all the hard work uh, of President Michel and uh, uh, President uh, uh, von der Leyen and their services and all the European Parliament that worked flat out. The, uh, the institutions have worked together, and during the six-month period have n- been able to take action. With We have to all recognize with a great deal of humility that uh, Europe in, in June 2020 is very different from the one 2022 is very different from the Europe of January 2022, and we've all had to pull together. This has been made necessary because of Russia's decision to launch a war and we've actually been able to come up with uh, some okay, very we're important leave,
1: uh, French president Emmanuel Macron uh, speaking there in Brussels we also heard from the EU uh, commission, the commission president Ursula von der Leyen and the council election, president to their Charles Michel just wrapping up two days of a leader summit obviously the key issues discussed the war in ukraine as you heard there the decision to make Uh, Ukraine and EU candidates will provide them with EU candidate status. Now the work really begins on uh, more aligning them with other EU nations. They talked about monetary policy, the impact of inflation and the struggle that's providing, that they need to work in a coordinated fashion to address it. And obviously some of the critical issues and the vulnerabilities that we see for EU nations, the reliance on fossil fuels and uh, Ursula von der Leyen just going through the steps that are being taken and the increase in LNG uh, capacity coming in from the United States, deals with Israel, with Egypt. Uh, Norwegian, LNG as well, and Azerbaijan. So work is being made, clearly the point also being made that far more work is required, and we've been discussing that on the show all week. For now, we're going to take a break. We'll be back right after this. Stay with First Move. Okay, welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Friday and no end of week mystique. Stocks firmly in the green for a second straight session and on track for a winning week overall. The first in almost a month. All that. And despite ongoing fears that the Fed could tighten policy too aggressively and tip the U.S. economy into recession. Now Western Foreign Minister's meeting in Berlin, as we've already discussed on the show, trying to find an urgent solution to the global food crisis. The short-term key task is working out how to get huge stores of grain from Ukraine, given that Russia has blockaded its seaports. And if a solution can't be found, there are fears people in some parts of the world could be driven closer to famine. Let's speak to someone who could be part of a major solution. Oleksandr Kamoshin is the CEO of the state-owned Ukrainian Railways. He's also a part-time advisor to the Ukrainian Ministry of Infrastructure, and he joins us now. Alexander, it's fantastic to have you on the show. Talk to us about these hopes that perhaps rail trucks could be part of the solution. How easy is it, given mismatches in rail infrastructure, storage capacities? Just talk us through whether you can be part of the solution.
9: Hi. Indeed, before the war, we done uh, about five to seven million tons of grains export a month. So far, we do 600 to 800 mo- 1,000 tons a month, and we plan to approach uh, 1 million in the nearest months. That's only about railway export. If you double that, you will get total export from the country. So having about 2 million tons of grain export per month, we are three times lower than we should have because we got green to do six to seven million tons a month. Finally, we work on extending the western border corridors together with Poland, Romania, and uh, other countries like Hungary and uh, Slovakia. Meanwhile, we agreed that we will run Ukrainian rail cars on European network, and that will allow us to significantly increase the capacity. And uh, finally, without unlocking the seaports. We will be struggling, but we will not get all the green out.
1: Wow. Okay. so there's two problems there. There's the first problem, which is understandable, which is you're doing nowhere near the capacity that you were doing before the war started. Never mind being able to try and increase beyond that. And you're saying there are logistical challenges with doing that anyway. Alexander, I know I'm asking perhaps impossible questions given the fact that the war continues but how much time do you think it will take to you even get to get back to the point where you can transport what you were doing pre-war never mind adding to that
9: in months will increase the export of grains by rail only uh, 10 to 30 percent so from 800,000 tons a month which we' done in may it will take us a year to get to the level uh, where we were before the war. But uh, unlocking the seaports will increase uh, the capacity and will decrease the term within which we will get back to normal level.
1: I know you met with some of the European leaders when they travelled to Ukraine. Did you make that clear to them that you said, look, rail, road, road? that's not ultimately going to be part of a short-term solution. Somehow the international community need to get those ports open and clear that waterway and make it safe. Did you make that point to them? And and what was their response?
9: US leaders as well as European leaders do understand that unlocking seaports is the key. So far, we have to work with extending the capacities on the borders, on the Western borders, to keep running until the seaports are unlocked.
1: Okay, so message was provided. What was their response, Def- Alexander? We'll try. Well, definitely
9: all of the European and all of the, all the, all the worldwide leaders are helping us in uh, opening the seaports, unlocking the seaports. But so far, no success.
1: Yeah, Alexander, you're also tackling trying to keep your people safe. You have many tens of thousands of workers that have remained in the country and are still working. I know you're trying to repair damage that's been warped through the war as well. Can you give us a sense of, of that challenge too and, and how much time you think it's going to take to repair the infrastructure and what kind of outside support is being provided in that, in that regard?
9: So far, once Russians shell us, we keep repairing and keep running on schedule. But uh, reconstruction of the damage of the infrastructure damaged uh, will take uh, some time. It, it's months and it's, it's years even. Uh, so far, we find a way how to keep running and uh, making an easy fix uh, that will keep us running. Uh, but finally, to have all the damage reconstructed will take us years.
1: Alexandra, I want to ask you as well about some comments that I've seen you make in the past. And it was about refrigeration trucks, containers, and they were being used to house the bodies of fallen Russian soldiers that died fighting in Ukraine. And and you said that your hope was that the Russian government would, would take them back and allow Russian families to bury their loved ones and and understand what happened in Ukraine. I just wondered if you're still keeping the bodies of those soldiers in order to allow them to be taken back to to Russia. And what happens if they're not, if the Russian government doesn't take them back?
9: You know, we started the program in the first weeks of the war when we saw that Russians indeed do not uh, take their bodies back. But finally, you know, some people say that we treat dead Russians better than they treat uh, their counterparts, uh, which are alive. And finally, we don't have other option, but keep uh, having those fridges on and keep uh, storing those bodies.
1: Yeah, I think your point there is um, a poignant one that... You're treating dead Russians better, perhaps, than Russians are treating living Ukrainians. Alexander, stay in touch with us, please. We'll speak to you again soon. Alexander, come in there. Thank you. And welcome back to First Move, chipping away at barriers to banking in Africa. In 2018, two young Africans saw a problem with the country's antiquated banking system. It doesn't connect everyone, and sending money costs too much. The solution, an app that makes sending and receiving money as easy as texting. Chipper Cash allows customers to transfer money, pay bills, trade Bitcoin and invest in U.S. stocks all on their cell phone. The app now has over 5 million registered users and is available in nine countries, seven of them in Africa. And joining us now is Ham Serenjogi. He's the CEO and co-founder of Chipper Cash. Ham, fantastic to have you on the show. This is a African solution to a problem that you discovered As a young boy and the challenges that your family faced, explain what this service provides to individuals and why it's been so transformative for your users.
10: Good morning, Julia. Thank you for having me. Hi. Um, So, yeah, rightly put, um, Chipper Cash is uh, a financial platform aimed at being intertwined in the fabric of people's financial lives in Africa. Um, And really the impetus of the company uh, came out of uh, my co-founder and I's uh, life experiences growing up. I grew up at a time when both my parents were self-employed and watching my parents really struggle to make payments to people um, that they worked with uh, or that they interacted with was one of the driving forces. And the realization that this was a massive content wide problem really got us excited. Uh, but for many people in Africa, making payments to someone else in the country in or in another country is incredibly difficult. And so for me, seeing that firsthand, uh, from my parents was a really really strong, um, uh, left a strong impression on me and really drove me to start the company with with my co-founder Majid.
1: Yeah, I think my my key question would be how how are you managing to keep costs for remittances and payments so much lower than other options out there? What's what's the technology and and how?
10: Yeah, so it's a really really complicated multifaceted problem, right? There's many aspects to it. Um, There's the liquidity um, issue you have to address, meaning that many currencies that we deal with are very illiquid. So if you're having to move money across countries in Africa, you know, Uganda to Nigeria, Uganda to Tanzania, Kenya, Rwanda, there's a liquidity issue that you have to solve. And then there's a platform infrastructure issue, which means that some countries have mostly mobile money infrastructure. Others have mostly banking infrastructure. Many have nothing. And so you have to make sure you have a system that can, speak and communicate with all those platforms and then you have a device issue which is most people don't have the devices that can support um, apps that support a product like ours quite well and so you have to address the compatibility issue so it's a combination of all these things being brought together in addition to our own um enterprising and innovation uh, solutions that we built with our team and infrastructure um that makes this possible so it's not a one sort of you know, silver bullet type problem that gets solved by doing one thing. It's a combination of all these things which we've been able to do over the last three and a half years, almost four years now, that slowly start to move the needle and make it a more accessible, cost-efficient um, uh, um, uh, activity for people to do, which is sending money across borders um, very easily. And I think we're still a long way to go. We've done the most and we've been able to move the needle quite a bit, but we have so much more work ahead of us in in each of those areas to make it even more easier and cheaper for people to send money across borders easily.
1: I mean, what timing as well ahead of the pandemic. (laughs) Uh, And you've moved incredibly fast. I mean, go back to the fall of 2020 and you began to let users buy and sell Bitcoin and Ether and were collecting trading fees, of course, as a result, which is additive to, to the business model as well. Can I ask just how much activity that you've seen on that and what you've seen in recent weeks? And are you getting people coming to you and asking questions in light of the sheer amount of volatility that we've seen and the the plunge in prices as well, because there's there's sort of a two-way street here in terms of providing a functionality and and assistance in trading these things and then then people losing a lot of money potentially too.
10: Yeah, you're absolutely right. The pandemic was, I think, for us a reminder of the importance of our product and platform. Mm. In many ways, most people became even more dependent on the product in the pandemic because either they were recipients of remittances from another country or their business relied on the product that much more. Um, but with regards to crypto, I think it's a very exciting area for Africa as a whole. Um, one of the things that I think many people, particularly in the West, take for granted is the stability of, of, of currencies. Um, when you look at many sub-Saharan African currencies, um, right. in relation to cryptocurrency, <laughs> they actually aren't that you know different in terms of volatility. So it's not that scary an idea to try and invest in something that's of a different asset type. Uh, and for us, you know, our approach to this has been: we believe cryptocurrency has a role to play in the future of financial services, and we work very closely with our central bank partners to make sure that we are fathering their objectives. We're providing this in a very safe and open manner, as opposed to having it be done something something having it be, something is done under the table or in dark corners or in unsafe environments. I think the role for cryptocurrency and platforms like ours is to have it be out in the open be provided in a safe manner and leverage the good things about it, things like being able to transfer value easily, being able to uh, make other financial products and instruments accessible to many people uh, in a very safe and um, not as volatile manner as most people sort of assume it to be all the time. So for us, we've seen tremendous growth and adoption of this on our platform, and we expect much of the same going forward.
1: Yeah, you know what, of all, of everything you said, I loved your point about um illiquidity or relative illiquidity and and volatility being about perspective and where where you are in the world and what your currency looks like. Um, uh, People will also notice, I'm sure, that you're coming speaking to us from San Francisco. And we're barely scratching the surface of the journey that you've been on in in a very short space of time. But um, you're you're quite humorous about the challenges of raising capital. And now you've raised a lot of money from FTX, from Ribbit Capital, Bezos Expeditions. I believe that's the first African investment that, that they've made as well, which is quite fascinating um but you also have learned a lot through this process and some part of, of me is sad that you couldn't raise money in the continent of africa you had to come to the united states and it's a challenge for lots yeah. of startups around the world that, that that's where you have to come and i know you're trying to tackle this now too um just talk to me about that Absolutely. process and and why there needs to be more yeah, capital true. accessible on the continent yeah
10: Maybe next time we'll need more time to go through all of it. But in, I know. in summary, make it quick, my friend. Uh, we've been quite fortunate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we quite fortunate as a company. We've raised over $300 million. Uh, we're now valued at over $2 billion. But that was a very difficult journey in the beginning. And partly because most investors uh, in the world, Silicon Valley based investors, don't really know much about Africa. So there's a very steep learning curve you have to take them through to see the opportunity. But I think one of the very important roles a company like ours plays is that it shines a light on our space, and that over time, entrepreneurs coming out of Africa won't have to come to Silicon Valley to raise money. Right. So I think eventually that'll be something that more people can do, and we try to play a role in that as well. As a company, we are now investing in younger entrepreneurs uh, in the space. Personally, myself and my co-founder each personally invest our own money. We invested you know, over a million dollars, each of our own money, in young entrepreneurs and uh, uh, great ideas coming out of Africa. Access to capital is a massive barrier for many entrepreneurs, and uh, we think uh, our company can play a, m- a significant role in, in helping solve this issue. But, you know, we've been quite fortunate to work with the best investors in the world. Uh, you mentioned Bezos Expeditions. Uh, Jeff Bezos, we are, first, we are his first Africa investment. The same yeah. is true for all our uh, investments. Dan, Kiberlinger, Desians, Ribbit Capital, FTX, OneWay Ventures in Boston. So for us, that journey has been quite interesting because for each of our investors, we've been their first investment in Africa. And we think that plays a double role, which is obviously getting a company capitalized, but also showing them the opportunity and the importance of supporting even more entrepreneurs that are focusing on Africa as a space. I think it's a massive opportunity, probably the biggest opportunity in the world right now, solving the unbanked and underbanked uh, oh, problem of financial services in Africa.
1: I couldn't agree more with that. Um, I've got 50 more questions for you, so we'll have to get you back. And uh, with it, as you said, $2 billion valuation. I think you should have drunk that champagne that's over your left
10: shoulder there.
1: But maybe you're saving it for we're, the we've $3 We've got billion a more mark. to
10: do, so it's such a to celebrate. But, but we're I know. fortunate I'm being what told,
1: what we're I'm told I've, got to, I've got to say goodbye. I'm being told off. We'll, we'll speak again soon. <laughs> great to chat to you. Thank you. Thank you, CEO and co-founder of Chipper Cash yeah, there. Bye. Thank you. Stay with First Move. Welcome back to First Move as we explore the Tau of DAO. DAO is a brand new Web 3.0 term. Three little letters that could spell big changes for the way companies operate, thanks to the promise of blockchain. As Anna Stewart reports in today's Think Big.
10: It's another amazing day here in downtown Dubai. Welcome,
11: Anna Spurton and Danosh Zahidi started their crypto podcast show in 2021.
10: So tell us a little bit about the DAO that you guys have put in place.
11: This term DAO stands for a decentralized autonomous organization. It's been a hot topic lately, garnering attention on this podcast and around the world. They're described as a group of people who come together, usually online, with a common goal and no centralized leader.
10: Think about DAOs as a new way to organize a company. You know, traditional companies have uh, shareholders, management, and then employees. The idea behind a DAO is instead to empower all members of that organization to have a say.
3: The
11: two podcasters love the concept so much that they went from talking about DAOs to
3: starting their own. We believe in the hive mind. We believe that the community, they have the best interest of the organization in mind. People are seeing the value that DAOs bring to the table.
11: They say they've raised over $1.5 million this year when they launched their company ArtsDAO, an organization that curates NFT art. Individuals hold a stake in their organization by owning a virtual token, and these tokens offer voting rights on company decisions. As an alternative to traditional companies, experts say DAOs offer more transparency, participation and trust among investors.
9: The business rules are clear once uh, smart contracts are published on the blockchain they are irreversible nobody can change them and this basically gives a high level of trust to stakeholders to basically uh, work with the concept and do business with the concept.
11: Anas and Dinoche are not alone. DAOs are popping up around the world. Some are charities fighting against climate change while others are opening up fast food franchises. One even pulled together $40 million to bid on a copy of the U.S. Constitution. Experts are seeing a growing interest in DAOs recently, but caution that the concept still needs time to mature.
9: I think the jury is still out. So for now, it's niche applications. There are very clear use cases in crowdfunding, in asset management that DAOs lend themselves particularly well to.
11: It's still early days for this new corporate structure, but Anas and Anosh are not waiting around. The two believe DAOs will revolutionize the business landscape, and that's why they're building now and spreading the word.
1: Anna Stewart, CNN. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at Jay Chatterley CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. Have a safe weekend.